Welcome to another episode of The Corner Booth, the official podcast of RestaurantOwner.com and Restaurant Startup and Growth Magazine. Today, the restaurant industry is changing faster than ever. Learn from successful independent restaurant operators and other industry leaders as they share best practices that will help you engage your team, delight your guests, and grow your business. Running a restaurant involves making a lot of tough decisions, but choosing Touch Bistro's POS isn't one of them. Our sponsor, Touch Bistro, offers an all-in-one POS and restaurant management system that's easy to use, easy to manage, and easy to afford. Find out why thousands of restaurants trust Touch Bistro to help them simplify operations, increase sales, and deliver a great guest experience. Here are your hosts, Barry Schuster and Chris Tripoli. Well, welcome to another episode of Corner Booth. I'm Chris Tripoli. I'm Barry Schuster, editor of Restaurant Startup and Growth Magazine. Barry, our guest today is Kirk Ruoff. People might know of him through the Turning Point Restaurants, uh, independent restaurant operator, 20-some units already throughout the Northeast. So we're going to hear an awful lot about the breakfast, lunch segment and how well he's been doing with his expansion. Kirk, welcome to Corner Booth. Thanks for having me, Chris. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here. We kind of like to get started, maybe if you wouldn't mind, going all the way to the beginning, let our listeners know a little bit about you and what drove you to get into this business in the first place. Sure. Um, I grew up in uh, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and worked for a gentleman, uh, Michael Hurst, who was the past president of of the uh, National Restaurant Association. He actually also taught uh, hotel and restaurant management at Florida Atlantic University down in in Florida, and he was really my mentor, kind of in the business. And uh, I grew up at his uh, restaurant, the 15th Street Fisheries, which was a large restaurant down on the intercoastal. And uh, my first job was peeling trips, sitting on a bucket, and at 13 years old, and I just I fell in love with it. I knew from that that moment on that this was something that that really piqued my interest, and I liked the pace of it, and. From early age, I wanted to be a restaurateur. So it, was, it wasn't one of those things that I just kind of fell back on. I, I learned it from a really young age. Grew up in Fort Lauderdale, happy kid, and got an opportunity to go play college football at Boston College. And uh, went up there and played for Coach Tom Coughlin. Learned an uh, incredible work, work ethic and got all the experiences of a Division I college football player. And uh, after graduating with my degree in four years, uh, spent a little bit of time away from the restaurant business doing the corporate uh, cubicle thing with an admin and was was not too happy doing that and decided I, I needed to get back into the restaurant business. And so I walked into a Chili's and applied for a job as a cook and was making $8 with my college degree and said, I, I got to learn all over. At that time, that would have been back in 95, 96, when Chili's and, and Brinker was really making a push up in the New Jersey area and the Northeast. It went to work for them, got promoted into the manager's spot and, and, and learned how to run restaurants from Brinker International. Moved up through the ranks, was a trainer, didn't, didn't quite get to the general manager spot. Three and a half years after working for Chili's, my wife came to me and said, I'm pregnant and you need to figure out a new job. You need to figure out something different. At that time, I said, you know, it's time for me to leave, develop the breakfast and lunch idea and started in Little Silver, New Jersey in a little 12 table restaurant. It was 35 seats and just plugged in a, a breakfast and lunch, kind of a high end gourmet breakfast and lunch. And we started in um, 1998, in March of 1998, and people loved it. It was it was something that people hadn't seen in the market in New Jersey. There was a lot of diners and there's a, a lot of greasy spoons and kind of a hole in the wall kitchenette. And we went in there with our with a French press coffee and cappuccinos and lattes and did lobster eggs Benedict and. Uh, skillets and some really creative food that really took hold in the community. And, you know, I knew I had something at that point. That was the first turning point? Yep. The first turning point was a little, silver, yeah, a little silver, New Jersey. So it was a, it was a labor of love. It was, I'd take the order and go back and cook the food and wash the dishes. And you just, you just did what you 
you'd always known from your predecessors and all your experience and took care of guests. Um, after about six months, our, uh, we ended up hiring a chef from the Culinary Institute of America to come help me with the kitchen. Uh, her name's Bonnie Ivoroni, and she's our current COO. And so she's been with me for this 23 and a half year run. She really helped, uh, helped me build the business and make it what it is today. Mary, I don't think we've heard that story of inception before. Working in a restaurant, my wife says, guess what? I'm pregnant with our first baby. And the answer to that is, I think we should go into the restaurant business. Well, it's a big, it's a big deal to uh, start your own concept. Kirk, did you um, go into this with the idea that you would see expansion at some point to the level you've experienced now? Or did you at some point realize, hey, this thing has legs and and maybe I need to think about expanding it. What was your your game plan going into this? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, you know, I I graduated with an entrepreneur degree, uh, entrepreneur management degree at, at BC. So I kind of always had a business person's hat on it. I love the restaurant business. I love the culinary piece, the hospitality piece, talking to the guests. But I had a bigger vision there. I, I knew that I wanted to have more than one location and getting that experience with chilies of systems and processes and uh, standard operating procedures really helped in formulating like I need to dial it in quicker because it, it, the sooner I can dial it in and, and give those customers a really consistent experience, then I can go and do number two or number three. So my mindset was always to kind of grow a company. I, I didn't have any, I didn't have, I like to call it like mom's secret sauce recipe. Like, and only I can make the sauce. It, there was none of that. It was just, you know, let's, let's give a consistent experience with a lot of value in it and let's try to duplicate it. So it was, uh, it wasn't like I kind of fell into it, you know, it was certainly planned. What inspired the concept? You said that there was nothing like it in, in, in New Jersey where you were at that time. And that's great because there's a point of differentiation. And the reason I'm asking, because I've talked to other operators who went in breakfast and lunch. In some cases, part of the motivation was, hey, you know, I don't want to be here till two o'clock in the morning every every night. Breakfast is profitable. I want to be able to be out of here at five o'clock in the afternoon, go home, spend time with my family. I don't want a dinner day part. Uh, did any of that figure into your inspiration? Yeah, I mean, growing up in the nighttime restaurant business, I mean, I know what it takes. I knew that it was kicking the, the drunks out of the bar at 1 a.m., 2 a.m., and then having to clean up after them and, and then turn it around and do so doing a close open and being available at 7 o'clock the next morning. So, I mean, I did those shifts at Chili's. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when, when my wife said, hey, we're, we're, we're pregnant, we're going to have our first child, and I don't want to eat dinner alone every night, you, you had to figure out something. And, you know, being in a market where you have diner owners that are, that are open 24-7, I mean, they open up the doors, they throw away the keys, they never lock the doors, they're open on Christmas, they're open on Thanksgiving. So you knew that you had to kind of differentiate yourself from that experience. And, and New Jersey was the diner capital of the, of the country. So um, I, I felt that the, that the limited, if we can apply our, a dinner fine dining dinner mentality to operating breakfast and lunch and give this differentiated experience that it might work. It might work. And, and it did work because, you know, I, I find it, I think find it incredibly surprising. And, and I'm, a, I'm a little bit in awe when I, when I go into a diner and you see 150 items on their menu, you see, you know, how do you doing the Salisbury steak and the pancakes? How are you doing uh, a meatloaf, and then also doing waffles. So I knew we wanted to have a limited menu. We wanted to execute well. We wanted to be differentiated. And if, if we can do that and we can be busy on the weekends and we can support ourselves Monday through Friday with a lunch crowd, that we'd be able to pay our bills and make a living. And, and, and it worked. And it didn't really work. I mean, the first restaurant was only was only um, 1,300 square feet. So our second location was was this was our prototype, which is 3,500 square feet, 120 seats. So I, I knew that that once we scaled it up and we got a, a bigger box, that we'd be able to generate some more revenue. And uh, and that, in fact, it, it did work. Mm -hmm. um, so, but it's it's you know we have some home runs out there with 21 locations. We have some home runs and we have some singles. You know, so it's not always each one you stamp out is going to be a home run. So you know you're still challenged by um, 
location, management, and staffing, and execution. You know, we, uh, you mentioned the experience that you had with uh, Chili's early on and that you took some of what you learned, obviously, when you went on your own. We have a high regard for the systems and procedures that we know come from that kind of background, having had uh, Doug Brooks on our program earlier. And there's a high respect for uh, the workings of that company. Um, so did it help you to have things like systems um, and controls right from the get-go in the very first location? Yeah, I mean, those, those, those are foundations to, to running a successful restaurant. If, it's, if you don't have that organizational structure right out of the gate, it's hard to implement it later on. So when you, when you, you know, whether you're serving fajitas and baby back ribs or you're serving omelets and waffles, it's, it's, you're still ordering food, you have par levels, you have staffing requirements, you know, staffing requirements, uh, you, you have, um, you know, the, the, the pictures of the food and, and how you build the food and the equipment that you're using and, um, uh, portion control, all those things, steps of service, all those things, it doesn't really matter. I mean, those are just core 101 blocking and tackling of the restaurant business. And if you don't go into your concept with just knowing specifically how to execute, you're going to kind of fumble over yourself. And I don't care what type of food you're serving. You're, it's not, it's a, no pun intended. It's a recipe for disaster. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I learned that, I mean, the only, I mean, learning it from Michael Hurst at 15th street fisheries. I mean, he, you don't become the national, the president of the national restaurant association and become a professor of hotel and restaurant management without knowing those systems and how, so I've, I've only ever been really exposed the right way to do things. So it really was, I mean, that was at, at the core of our business. I mean, even when we're opening up restaurants today, it's just, it's like, let's, let's just block and tackle. Let's do the things that we know what is important to the customer experience and, and really now doubling down on staff engagement and, and what are we doing for the staff? Because, you know, that's, that, that's differentiating today the winners and the losers is staff retention, going out and finding the staff and training them, making sure they're engaged because you, you don't want them to leave to go make a buck down the street or two bucks down the street. So we've, we've really doubled down on our efforts of how do we make our, our staff feel more of a part of the Turning Point family and, and not want to leave to go make another, you know, another dollar. So, There's a lot I want to ask you about the whole process of going from one to 21, because that's a, a huge deal, but uh, springboarding off of your, just your comments just now. Um, I like to ask you about how you implement a certain type of culture that would make me want to stay with your company um, and not go down the street for a dollar extra an hour. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah. I mean, we, we've, we've really made a conscious effort, to, to leverage as much technology in our business as possible. And when I say technology, I'm talking about uh, staff members having their schedule on their phone on an app. And when they don't want to work, they can go and get their own shift covered by giving up that shift. And, and, and then that communicates to their whole crew. Of like, I'll, I'm looking to pick up a shift. Our experience for our employees from the inception of when they first get hired all the way to the time they leave, it's, it's all, there's no paper. No paper. Everything is in the cloud. Uh, W2s, uh, all of the training materials available to them in the cloud. Their benefits. Um, so, so we're, we leverage technology to make sure that these employees, which are typically uh, younger employees that are just kind of coming in the workforce, that they feel really comfortable with with the experience. And it's really kind of from a, 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 a digital technical tech background. Um, now, there's 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 other things that we're doing, like supporting um, the social goals of our employees. So if one of our employees is really passionate about saving the planet, you know, how, how do we as a company support their efforts? And so we actually encourage that on a regular basis of, of our employees coming to us and saying, you know, what are, what are your passions? What are the things that are, how are you being a better person? And we support those efforts. 
we're still having a company picnic where we close down the restaurants and everybody comes to a big field and we have kind of a, a turning point Olympics where we're tossing water balloons and we're giving away um, vacation trips and uh, big screen TVs. And so like, so we, we're kind of mixing in the new with the old. Here, here's, a, here's an easy one. Every, sign, every time it's somebody's birthday on shift, we're going to have our manager go out and buy a little birthday cake and we're going to sing them happy birthday because everybody has a birthday and it's their day and we're just going to recognize them that it's their birthday and, and thank them for, for being part of the turning point family. So, you know, it's all those things. It's, it's, it's a culmination of a lot of different things where we were really looking to retain our employees and make sure they feel special. Uh, as far as recruitment and getting them in the door, we just, we really just want to hammer it's, it's days only it's no nights mm-hmm. work life balance. Make you can make nighttime money working days only, and and to tell somebody who's been in the restaurant business a long time uh, that that our expectation is our doors are going to close at three o'clock and we really want you to walk out the door by four o'clock and mm-hmm. you to be able to go to the gym and work out or go to the grocery store and buy that night's dinner and go home and cook it to your family and serve it. I mean, that, that, that makes their head explode <laughs> who's been in the business. And what deal. we're seeing right now is your, your veteran Applebee's server or chain restaurant server that has, that is now coming back into the workplace and they're, they've kind of, they've um, separated themselves from their employer from a long time. It's like, they're, they're going to look and say, how do I want to spend my time? I like the business. I like the hospitality business. I like the money. Um, you know, but do I want to go back to work until midnights and one o'clock? And so that's where there we are with our offering of days only, no nights, you know, get your work-life balance back. So it's, it's, it's a compelling offer. And we, we're seeing a lot of people coming through our doors and applying for the jobs that, that are, they're just, they're tired. They're tired and they don't want to go back to it. So it work from your strength. Your um, chief operating officer is one of your very first employees. Could you take a couple moments and maybe discuss the rest of your structure. What's really required to grow like you, you know, have and be in three states with over 20 locations? Uh, how do you structure and operate that? Yeah, so, I mean, everybody in our, in our corporate team, whether it's our marketing department, our human resources, or our office accounts payable controller, they're all restaurant people. They're people that have been servers they're, they've been cooks, they've been bus boys, they've been, they've been in the business. So my view on it is, is our, our restaurant managers are our essential employees. They are, they're the heart of the body that's pumping the blood through the whole organization. So everything we're doing from a corporate standpoint is to support those restaurant managers. They're our frontline workers. So no policy, no decision gets made for the company without the, the say and the opinion of those restaurant managers. And our whole organization knows that that's a difficult job, managing the customers, the, the customers of today, managing the employees of today. Uh, that is all done by restaurant management. And, and we spend a lot of time listening to our ran- restaurant managers and making sure we're there to support them. So as you grow over the years, you have to make sure that you're bringing people into the corporation that have that background, that have that, those experiences. Because when, you're, when your manager calls you and says, my POS system's down, like that's painful. And we have a person on staff that is certified to pick, fix that and get that person up and running. We have crash kits and we walk them through it. This is what you need to do. And we stop everything else we're doing. We stop paying bills. We stop marketing, whatever we're working on at a corporate level, we stop to support that restaurant manager. Uh, we have uh, a four member team, a uh, facility member team. One's a, one's a licensed plumber, one's a licensed HVAC and refrigeration guy. When the air conditioner goes out, we send our own guy out there to go fix their refrigerator, fix their, if they have a backup in the restaurant, they're gonna go out there, the licensed plumber, he's gonna go fix their problem. You know, those are the things that we tell restaurant managers when they're applying for the job. Like, like we know how important, how challenging it is to run a restaurant. So we're going to surround you with a bunch of people that get it 
and we'll support you. And they, and lucky for us, knock on wood, they don't, they don't leave. Once they kind of come here, they, they, they feel like they found a home. And a lot of that is just in the support of them and their efforts at the store level. So, I mean, if that's one piece of advice that I would give somebody who wants to grow their businesses is don't cut the restaurant support short, just keep doubling down on it and listen to your managers. Is the uh, model, um, and, and I'm just saying this because that's what it sounds like to me, uh, based on all corporate run and owned units, or is it is a franchise element? Um, could you explain, you know, what, what tact you've taken and, and why? Yeah. So for the past 23 years, we were all corporate owned. So we have all our current locations right now are corporate owned. And it was just went through different structures of debt and silent partners, angel investors. And in 2019, uh, we finally got to a certain scale that we went out to market and we, we have funding from a private equity company. Mm -hmm. So in 2019, they, they made an investment and they made a, as of today, they own 40% of the company. And my wife and I, we own the majority of shares. So we still uh, control the board and we control the day-to-day -day decision making. Mm -hmm. um, so they've been excellent partners through uh, the pandemic and all the things that were happening. They always supported our efforts and um, you couldn't ask for, a, you know, you, you really don't know how your partners are going to re respond when you sign the papers. They, they always say like when times are tough, you can test the relationship. And uh, we certainly tested the relationship during the pandemic and, and they were nothing but supportive of, of, our company and our goals. Uh, now, what was interesting coming out of that is uh, the the private equity firm is New Spring Capital. New Spring Capital has since made uh, some investments in, in other growing franchise brands like uh, Duck Donuts uh, would be one, uh, which is kind of a gourmet duck. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a, a donut company of all franchise based. Pat Segru, who's heading up that that fund for them is a SolidWorks, uh, ex-CEO of SolidWorks. And so they, they look at emerging brands that are franchise-based. And we were having discussions during the pandemic that, and they kind of approached me and said, hey, have you ever thought about franchising? And I said, yeah, I've kind of given some thought, but I'm not sure if it'll work. And, and we, we kind of agreed that it's, it's very franchisable. And when you look at the other breakfast and lunch chains that are in this space, a lot of them are using a franchise model to grow. And so when we, we, we stepped back and we looked at how people were spending their time, they're not commuting into work, they're working out of the house, they have kind of these hybrid work environments, and people are really valuing their, their time that they're spending away uh, from work and this flexibility that it gives them. And so we, we made the decision to make an, an investment in a franchise uh, system. And uh, we've, uh, we just went out to market four months ago. We hired a vice president of franchise development. He came to us from BurgerFi, uh, which is a Florida-based uh, better burger concept. Uh, we hired a PR agency. Uh, we put together an FTD and uh, went public four months ago. And uh, we've already signed our first franchisee. He's going to open up. Uh, it's actually a partner that came to us from Capital Grill, and he also has a financial partner. And a uh, gentleman says, I love the turning point. I love the hours of operation. I have a financial partner, and he's going to be our first uh, franchisee that's going to open up in Pennsylvania. Uh, we have uh, interest. We, we Right now, we're discussing uh, the opportunity with about a dozen other people in markets in Virginia and Florida. And we're really kind of trying to focus on the, the East Coast uh, right now. We really don't want to go west of the Mississippi. Um, so it's just another vehicle, another revenue driver, another vehicle for growth. Uh, we have plenty of capital that we're going to continue to grow uh, with our corporate owned stores as well. And maybe we have to go into some markets and seed those markets with uh, a corporate location. Uh, but then, you know, the intention is then to sell that corporate location off to a, a, a potential franchisee. Uh, so you just kind of get the name out there and you get it started and, and you come behind it with the, the franchise um, system in place. So, you know, we're basically looking at like a two-pronged growth prospects for the future. 
So when will the first franchise open um, or has it opened, the one that you're talking about in, in Pennsylvania? Uh, they're slated for May. We sold it right in the middle of some existing corporate locations so we can give them a lot of support and we can be there to, to help them. And, you know, obviously your first couple that you you sign up, you want them to be your trumpeteers and, you know, you're going to make, you're going to do everything you can to make sure they're successful because they're going to kind of be the, the brand ambassadors. Kirk, we talk to a lot of operators and uh, very often um, the conversation can't be steered away from the fact we just coming out of a pandemic and they discuss all the ways they're beleaguered in terms of supply chain, in terms of employees, in terms of the shifting to third-party delivery. Uh, You seem to have a pretty good game face on here. I'm not getting that you were beat up too much in spite of what had gone on for two years, but uh, can you talk about that and maybe some advice you might be able to provide our readers in terms of um, how you navigated all this. It's not like you're a Burger King, you're serving kind of an upscale menu, um, which is hard for me to imagine being sent out with DoorDash in a, in a styrofoam uh, box. But tell us what went on during that time and, and, and what you did to make things work. Yeah, it's, you know, I was speaking to Chris earlier about this. It's just, you know, you know when you're in, when you've been in business for 24 years and you've gone through 9-11, you went through the housing collapse and the Wall Street collapse. And, you know, we're on the we're on the doorstep of Wall Street. So certainly our communities around us got really affected when when you had Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers going out of business and went through a couple of hurricanes where we got hit hard. You know, you, you become res- resilient and a little calloused. Uh, but, but something like, you know, you always pull your bootstraps up and you try to figure it out. You just keep doubling down on knowing what you know, which is great food, great service, clean restaurant. And, and you just, you go back to your core. And so, you know, we're still standing 24 years later. And so you've seen a lot and you've been through a lot. The challenges that we saw with the pandemic were, it was it was frustrating at times because it was completely out of your control. Uh, what was happening? You would sit there and you would wait for the governor's uh, weekly press conference. And, and being kind of in the early epicenter of the pandemic, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Manhattan, um, <laughs> You, you, you felt like you didn't have control of the situation. It wasn't like pull up the bootstraps, let's get us back to work. It was just like, what's going to happen this week? Uh, a perfect example. So I, I got really involved with the New Jersey Restaurant Association. I sat on the executive advisory committee to the president of the New Jersey restaurants. I was on a round table with uh, uh, Cory Booker and Bob Menendez, our senator, and explaining to him our plight with the restaurants and and um, it was extremely frustrating. It was extremely frustrating. Our, our governor gave us the green light to go ahead. He was going to open up the dining room. And we went out. We hired 400 employees and brought them back to work. We stocked up the refrigerators. We were prepping for the weekend. And two days before we were ready to open, he came out and released a statement and said, you know what? We're not quite there yet. We're going to have to sit back and we're not going to open. So I had to go and terminate. 300 employees, throw out the food, throw out the prep food. And, you know, so just kind of being, you know, for lack of a better word, just jerked around like that, just not knowing what was, what was going to come down the pike. It, it became very, it became frustrating because you just, you didn't see any light at the end of the tunnel. Um, but, you know, with that being said, you know, we're, it, it feels like we're out of it. And then now we're on to another challenge, which is supply chain management and uh, watching your cost of goods sold, you know, slowly creep up. Um, The only thing I will say about that is across the country, we're all kind of being treated the same now. So I think that the consumer is hearing it, whether they're hearing, whether they're looking at their, their, their check for breakfast, or they're looking at their check for fine dining, or they're going to the supermarket and they're, getting the receipt from the supermarket gone, gee, it's, it's 20% higher than it normally is. I, I think it's, it's not, I think the average consumer 
doesn't view this as the greedy restaurateur. They're they're viewing this as like this is what's happening in our country at this time. It's whether it was COVID related or it's the war in Ukraine or just basically upward wage pressures on truckers need to get paid more money to drive the truck across the country. Uh, there's all these things. I think it's a culmination of all those things. But I I don't I, I don't I don't see it from from our our customers. I mean, breakfast is still, I mean, our check averages are $12, $13. It's, it's not $60. It's not $70. I mean, I was down in Florida and my wife had an $18 martini. I was like, $18? You can get, yeah. a, whole, you can get a whole breakfast at the turning point with coffee and, and, uh, <laughs> and a side of fruit for $18. Uh, so I, I, I think that the consumer's well aware of kind of what's happening here. I, I, I think I'm still very optimistic on restaurants. You know, mm-hmm. I, I don't know what's going to happen if in the next two years they're talking about a possible recession, but, you know, we've been through a recession before and I like the space we're in, you know, I, I, I like mm-hmm. breakfast and lunch. Uh, we did implement a third party delivery. Mm-hmm. So never in a million years that I think the people who want breakfast delivered, but they do. And mm-hmm. those numbers can continue to stay very strong. And so, like what Warren Buffett says, don't uh, don't underestimate the laziness of Americans. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just to follow up on that, maybe you could expand a little bit about how the customer uh, buying habit towards your brand has changed. It's good that third party is working. I'm happy that it's working for your segment because we see across other concepts that it's become just a must. But have the customers come back in a way that uses the dining room or are we using the dining room less and are we using online ordering more? And maybe you could expound on if that's the case, what kind of technology, if any, have you considered now to help promote online ordering, curbside pickup, you know, to get maximum revenue out of the new, you know, buying habits of the customer? Yeah, so uh, you know, implementing the third-party delivery, you know, that was just done out of necessity. You know, our dining rooms are closed. We want to open up our kitchens. We have customers coming in to pick up food. So, so let's let's spin up third-party delivery. Now that creates a new problem. We're like, okay, now I need a third-party aggregator service that now will dump this into our POS system. So, you know, we've implemented all those solutions along the way, and 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 at the start of the pandemic, it's like, well, we're just going to do this until we get our dining rooms back. And then, then I'm, the expectation is the delivery business will fall off. But for us, for Turning Point, it never fell off. I mean, the, the people, we, we have a location up in Hoboken that's on the bo- ground floor of a 17-story building. And, and people order delivery in the same building that you're located in. And they pay the delivery fee. They just, they're that lazy. They don't want to walk down. <laughs> they have their bag. They want it delivered. So if that's the way you want to receive your turning point, I'd be happy to sell it to you that way. Uh, the nice thing for us is that is that when when the dining rooms do get busy, they are for the first priority. So we'll shut off the system if the kitchen gets backed up. We need to make sure the customers that spent the time to come to the restaurant that are sitting in the dining room, getting the traditional waitress service or waiter service, that they 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 get their food out the, the way they should be. Uh, but then, you know, being able to turn it on in the slow times, you know, on, a, on our rainy Tuesday, you know, we're going to do a lot of deliveries. And, uh, you know, we've done a good job at the turning point with giving them instructions on how to heat up the food and preheat the oven. And surprisingly, you can put a waffle inside of a styrofoam box and heat it up in a preheated oven and, and it comes out decent. So, you know, it's how you're executing the packages you're using, the packaging you're using and and the efficiency of your drivers to make sure that, that you're providing them the, the best experience possible. Um, we don't have French fries, but just whoever comes up with the best way to deliver a French fry and still have it be good is, is going to be the winner of the, the, the delivery game because some foods just don't, don't travel. We've implemented some other technology. We, we went with a company called uh, Up and Go that, that prints a, a QR code at the bottom of the receipt. Uh, and we're finding that people uh, at the end of their meal will drop the receipt. They can just take a picture of that QR code, pay from their phones, Apple Pay, and just leave. Uh, that's been a great um, uh, piece of technology that we introduced that helps us turn the table. Uh, it slows down on the, the end of uh, dining experience lag. 
you know, when you kind of look at, you know, when you're done with a meal and you're looking for the server, I want them to bring me a check and then they bring the check and you got to review it and you got to put your credit card on top of it and you got to wait for them to come back. And now they grab your credit card and, and you're like, I hope they didn't, you know, write down my numbers. <laughs> and then you got to wait for them to come back and you, you got to sign the receipt, you know. So, you know, using a piece of technology like Up and Go, where you just print that QR code at the bottom of the receipt and someone can take a picture of it and pay and walk out. Uh, those are the things that, that we've we've rolled out and we'll continue to have those, those um, offerings to our guests in the future. So, you know, I, I, I just think that um, there's so much technology out there for restaurants that if you're not looking at it and you're not evaluating it, you're really going to fall behind uh, because it really is... It's, it's what the consumers want and they, they want more convenience and they want speed. And as an operator, you just got to think about more efficient ways to run your business. And, and, and those solutions are out there, but you got to spend some time and you got to vet them. Our sponsor, Touch Bistro, powers thousands of restaurants with its all-in-one POS and restaurant management platform. Beyond its exceptionally easy to use point of sale, Touch Bistro provides best-in-class customer engagement products for online ordering, loyalty, email marketing, and gift cards. Whether you're focused on restaurant operations or keeping customers coming back for more, Touch Bistro can help. And now, back to Chris and Barry. Is liquor a part of your breakfast-brunch concept? If so, what kind of percentage of sales come from that? Yeah, uh, We don't have... Uh, the liquor licenses in New Jersey and Pennsylvania really just don't support a, a breakfast and lunch concept. So we haven't, you know, we've, we've explored it a little bit, but uh, you know, in a lot of the markets in the towns that we're in a little silver, it would be a, you know, a seven figure investment to, to get a liquor license and you just won't get the return. Mm -hmm. so, uh, and we, we really don't want to be known as kind of the, the boozy brunchy, let's get drunk on Sunday morning place. <laughs> You know, we're kind of catering to families. Mm -hmm. so. Got it. So. And then what percentage of your unit volume is now uh, the curbside, the pickup, the delivery? Because you, you mentioned it grew, obviously, out of necessity. But then to your surprise, when the dining rooms opened, it didn't really go down. So what percentage of revenue really comes from that? Uh, you know, it, it went from about three to 4% delivery takeout. Uh, now it's upwards of 15 to 16%. So it's, it's substantial. Yes. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a big part of our, our business. And what about your labor costs? Um, uh, are they staying somewhat manageable? Uh, yeah, they, yeah, they are. I mean, you know, we're, we had to scale down our menu a little bit, you know, our, our menu was uh, a little bit larger. And so we've kind of scaled down and streamlined our menu. So we're, we're normally with a, a larger menu, we would run uh, back a house with uh, six or seven members. Now we can run it with five or six. So we kind of trimmed down our labor and became a little bit more efficient and what we're doing. And, and that, a lot of that is just kind of menu uh, tailoring, tailoring the menu to be more efficient and and not have such choices. And, and we didn't get any uh, blowback from the customers when we did that. I think they kind of understand what's happening. Um, you know, using using technology like Up and Go will help us. You know, a server can now take a a five table station versus a four because we're kind of you know they're not having to walk back and forth. People are settling the check there at the table. So some of the technology and some of the things that we've done uh, helped us run the restaurants more efficiently uh, with less people. So as far as a uh, you know labor being a, a percentage of, of gross sales, it's we've we've stabilized it. But still, you know we're we're living in a state uh, that is on its way to fifteen dollar an hour minimum wage, mm -hmm. and so we're every year we're absorbing that dollar increase in in, in minimum wage and. It, it, it was not, it was the tipped employees and the non-tipped employees that got the minimum wage. So our, our tipped employee wage went from 213 to 525. So when, when you think about how the average restaurant usually has three tipped employees for every one non-tipped employees, that extra $3 an hour really does make an impact in the restaurant. Um, so um, the front of house servers between the, the increased hourly wage and 
the menu prices going up and, and them getting tipped, you know, 15 to 20%, they're, they're doing well these days. It's, mm-hmm. it's good to be a server. I think and when you look in, in a lot of restaurant concepts here. Can you speak a little bit on how you market the brand? Uh, I mean, you've probably over the tenure of the, you know, 20 some years uh, modified the approach on how you do marketing and promotion. Uh, you've got an established brand that's different than I know a lot of listeners who are maybe running one unit or just opening their first one. But I think they could probably learn a lot from how you have a marketing plan and how how does it work between local store marketing, community involvement, social media? How do you do it? Well, you, you have to have uh, just a vibrant social media presence. You know, you want those followers, you want those eyeballs on the dishes you're creating and the experiences. And um, I was at a, at a, at a uh, conference. It was actually a restaurant conference that was down in Austin and in the adjoining hall was an influencers, a, a culinary influencers conference. And I poked in there and uh, you know, Google's got a display and Facebook has a display. And, and so the, these major companies are now, they see the value of being aligned with influencers, people that have 200,000 followers. And when they go to a restaurant and they eat and they talk about their experiences eating that restaurant, and then the restaurant's busy the next week, you know, it works. So our, our social media uh, marketing has, I mean, we're, we're spending a, a lot of time we're spending a lot of money doing, um, little short videos and bringing professional photographers and we're engaging uh, local influencers and, and letting them know who we are, uh, especially for the younger people, the younger people, they, when they see something they like and they give it the thumbs up or the like, or whatever they do, they're, they're basically, it's, it's, it's like the largest megaphone you ever, you could imagine telling people about your brand. Um, you know, not the you know, not not to say that we still don't do some traditional marketing. When we go into a market, we'll drop direct mail pieces, come in, have breakfast for free, enjoy this experience, nice picture on a postcard. Um, you know, and that still works because people still go and get their mail and they decide whether I'm gonna keep this or I'm gonna throw it away. And if you have a nice compelling offer, at least you get the eyeballs on them and people know who you are. So we're doing kind of a blend of of digital marketing. And, and also the traditional marketing. Um, being involved in your, in your local towns is so important. Sponsoring the baseball team, uh, having the full page ad on the high school play playbill that's there. And, and, and that's where really we look for our team members, the, the, the workers of that specific location. What are they involved in? What are the community events that are happening? And we, we never say no. It's always a yes. If, if somebody says, uh, you know, my band, my, my, my daughter's band is doing a fundraiser because they want to go to Washington, D.C. And, and, and play. Like, we're there with the sponsorship uh, mm-hmm. entities. And people, it's the smart business owners and smart restaurants, they get it. And, and they're involved. And they plug in very quickly. And, and that's what they want to see. So, you know, we're staying true to those those core beliefs that got, you know, that we started 24 years ago. And even though we're scaling up and we're getting bigger size, we won't stop doing those things. So, um, you know, those, those are the important things to, to marketing your brand, I think. In terms of your physical space, um, and I use this term cautiously because it, it, it's, it sounds pejorative, but it really isn't. Is it cookie cutter or um, are you like some of the other younger um multi-unit operators now who are saying, listen, I, I want to find a good location and one location may be a certain square foot. Another might be different. Um, I'll just do things, you know, in terms of the ambience and, and decor and uniforms so that people know they're in, in this particular concept, but I'm not going to be tied to a certain dimension or certain floor plans uh, specifically, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, you know, from, I don't think the consumer wants a cookie cutter brand. They want this uniqueness. They want this, this uh, different experience when they walk in. If you walk back into our kitchens, they all look the same and they need to look all the same because it's the manufacturing facility. It's you got to be able to execute. 
And so, you know, whether you're a cook in one location or another, you're like, okay, yep, everything's set up the same way. So from that standpoint, you want the uniformity. Now, when somebody walks in, you want them to, to feel like it's not the same as the one they went to along the shore. So we have the shore, we have a shore restaurant that's in uh, Long Branch, it's Pier Village, <laughs> it's a oceanfront community, uh, it's a double height a dining room, it's got a fish on the walls, it's got local historical pictures, it's got a, a, a expanded outdoor seating area, it's got a look and a feel like you're on the Jersey Shore. So now when we open up a restaurant that's in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, that's in the middle of farm country, it's got a kind of a Barney feel. It's got, you know, you you feel like you you got cows. You're looking at cows. You're not looking at fish and you're looking sure. at roosters. And but you know the, the menu is the same and and the staff's appearance looks the same. You still have uh, the turning point green. We call it. It's like the unique color of the walls. And so you're going to get a different. You're, there, there's some things that are same, same, but there's some things that are different. You know, we've gone into uh, second gen spaces from Ruby Tuesdays to Friendlies. Uh, we have uh, end cap space that are in lifestyle centers. Uh, so we've gone in all different types of boxes. Uh, we do need to stay in in a, a 3,500 to 5,000 square foot footprint. Mm-hmm. The rent has got to roll and the occupancy expense has got to be what we need it to be. And the deal, the, the economics of the real estate deal have to have to be within the same threshold. Mm-hmm. But as far as uh, cookie cutter, I wouldn't say it's cookie cutter, but then it's, it's consistent in some areas, but then it's non-consistent. And I think that that's what kind of really makes it, makes it unique. Mm-hmm. I would agree. I tell you, Kirk, I think you just gave an absolute perfect class for listeners to make note of on how to in how to properly manage trade dress in today's world. Uh, because you mentioned some of the significant things. There might be certain colors, use of logo, certainly menu, certainly the behind the scenes, how we're going to efficiently implement our concept that really have to be the same. But you made a good point of saying everything else is really pretty flexible. The way things might face, the way they might be decored, even the size is a little bit flexible depending upon the particular market you're in. And that doesn't damage the brand. Actually, it might accentuate the experience. Good good job. Yeah, thanks. I mean, all the restaurants are going to have a fireplace. They're going to have a breakfast bar. They're going to have a community table. You know, those are things that are non-negotiable. Those are things that people would expect when they walk into a turning point, but then you know how, where it's positioned and how it looks and the, and the build of it. It is very unique. Um, now, with that being said, you know we've only built in, in three states uh, in the Northeast. As we start to expand down in Florida, and we're looking at the the DC market, the Charlotte market. Um, you know, it's gonna. You, you probably don't need a fireplace down in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Uh, you know, so do we do we put in a fireplace or not? Those are decisions that we're going to have to come up with. Uh, but it's still going to have that turning point green. It's still like those I, I call them like non-negotiables. Those are things that makes it unique. Um, you, you don't want people to feel like it doesn't belong. You know, you, it, it doesn't make sense. If you're a fish house, I guess you want to have fish on the walls. And, you know, there's a theme there you have to to follow. But we, we don't want to have a theme restaurant. We want to have a comfortable dining room that is timeless. Uh, we put uh, we spent a lot of money on the millwork package in our restaurants. Uh, we've never gone with an open ceiling, spiral, ductwork, warehouse feel. We have wood floors in the restaurants. We don't have polished cement, you know, which I kind of feel is like a more of a cold warehouse look. I don't think that people are looking for that for breakfast and lunch. They're looking for a cup of coffee and to feel very homey and comfortable. And that's what I think we we get across in our dining room uh, when you come into the restaurants. Are there particular areas of your menu that you see as part of your future that could be branded for sale? Uh, Maybe a particularly logoed roasted coffee bean. Maybe a particular, I don't, I don't know, a, a breakfast salsa. I ask because we're beginning to notice a tremendous amount of increase in these smaller growing companies, packaging, logoing, and retailing some of their products. So we, you know, we do roast our own coffee. We are partners uh, and 
own a third party roasting company. And so we are looking to go into roast with our Calabunga coffee brand. And we have uh, the, the Calabunga coffee roasters brand is attached to the turning point. And we have four locations that have the Calabunga coffee roasters brand. Uh, and that's, we're basically serving the turning point menu in kind of a grab and go format. We're doing pour over coffee. We're doing French press coffee. We have uh, cold brew and nitro. So we've doubled down on our, on our, our beverage offerings for the turning point it's, and launched another brand called Calabunga Coffee Roasters. And we typically put that brand next to the turning point. So if we come across a space that is 5,500 square feet, we feel like that's just too large for a turning point. We'll go ahead and put in a turning point coffee roasters. And kind of on the weekends, it kind of acts as a glorified waiting room for the turning point when we go on a wait. But for the customers that don't want to have that full service experience, they can go in to a Calabunga and, and get it to go and walk out and, and have the same food and, um, and know that it's, it's, it's the quality they come to expect. So now out of this Calabunga Coffee Roasters, we are going to start a mail order, order online uh, coffee service. We have uh, glassware and we have mugs, custom mugs that we're going to sell and you know, things that are all kind of part of our brand. Uh, the, the brand itself, the logo is really strong brand. It's, it's basically, it's a cow on a surfboard and it kind of, it's, it's, it's a culmination of, we started out in Pennsylvania in the cow country with this concept, but we're also born along the Jersey shore where there's surfboards. So we decided to stick a cow on a surfboard and that's our logo. And we called it uh, Calabunga coffee roasters. So it's, it's unique. It's different. It's fun. And, uh, we're going to start, uh, to, to, package those items and you know we haven't really looked at we haven't explored packaging our salsa or packaging our our uh, mixed powder for pancakes yet uh, but it's something that certainly we'll look at in the future because i agree with you chris and it, it's becoming more and more popular one other thing that's also becoming a little bit more popular for the smaller companies to look at is getting into either franchised or licensed arrangements in what we call the non-traditional locations. You're probably seeing an interest in that where it's, whether it's on a university or an arena, um, theaters, airports, where these really large food service groups are looking at smaller regional interesting brands to see if they can't franchise or license them. Do you think Turning Point or Cowabunga might have that as part of its, I don't know, growth formula? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's certainly something that we would entertain those those conversations. We love love to talk to people. Uh, I mean, our vice president of franchise development uh, with was with uh, Predomage, and he was working actually specifically with Aramark and airports and non traditional uh, outlets uh, as they were looking to grow. So yeah, that that's it's a great opportunity for our business to to look at that and. Uh, and knowing that we've been in the in the Northeast for 24 years, you would think that that, that would be a that would be something that uh, a larger franchise group or one of those I don't know what are they, what do they call them? you know the the people that run you know food service and and airports and uh, there's a specific name for them. You know, we used to refer to them as like you know institutional contract feeders, but I think that name's been long you know replaced now. Uh, but they they are just they're growing. Levy Group and many others are growing in this contract management and filling the spaces with interesting uh, locally known regional brands. Hopefully that's a good opportunity for you. No, no, we definitely love to explore that. Well, there seems like a lot of upside at every turn with your concept. Um, and you seem to be very open-minded to opportunity wherever it might emerge. Yeah. Like my daughter likes to say, dad, stay in your lane. <laughs> and so, you know, people have said to me over the years, you can make more money open at night, but we're, we're happy with doing kind of like our, what, what our core businesses, which is daytime offering breakfast and lunch. Um, you know, our, our menu has morphed more towards breakfast than lunch. We have less salads and sandwiches on the menu and more breakfast items. Uh, we have noticed the consumer they that they they want to eat what they want to eat at any time of day. 
So they want to eat uh, Eggs Benedict at one o'clock. They're going to eat Eggs Benedict at one o'clock. They're going to eat uh, power green pancakes at 12 o'clock. They're going to eat power green pancakes at 12 o'clock. So, um, you know, we're, we've been known as, as a breakfast place and we're going to continue to, to double down on that and give the consumers what they want. Uh, we have noticed a, another shift, which I, 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 I find it interesting that the people are, it seems that they're getting away from three meals a day and they're kind of going to more of a two, two meals a day. Uh, so maybe they wake up in the morning and they do some intermittent fasting and only have coffee or something like that. And then they have their, their first meal at 11 o'clock or 12 o'clock. But the mind still tells you you want to have breakfast because you, you haven't had that. And so you have this, your first meal, let's say between 11 and one, and then that kind of takes them to dinner and then they have a traditional dinner and then they go to bed. So this, this when, when we're talking to our guests, you just don't see as much of, you know, I'm having a big breakfast now I'm having a big lunch and now I'm having a big dinner. Uh, maybe the, the days of the farmer breakfasts are over and, and that's just the trend on how people are, are starting to eat. But uh, that still leaves us, I think, in a really good sweet spot of if people haven't eaten their, their breakfast uh, and, and they're still of a, this is the first meal of the day mindset at 12 o'clock, one o'clock, then they're going to go for pancakes. They're going to go for a waffle. They're going to go for an omelet. Uh, and it's, uh, it's, it's typically, you know, it's, I think when you look at an egg white omelet or you look at some, you know, we're bringing our vegan part of our menu has expanded um, uh, considerably over the last 18 months. Uh, that, that that people are looking for something healthy and, and breakfasts can always be perceived as healthy. There's all there's a lot of items on our menu that are healthy. Uh, so uh, you know those are just interesting shifts. You know over the the 20 years of, of being in business that that I've kind of seen. I think you're right on target with that shift, and it does work well for this market segment. I mean, whether you want to eat like a the farmer breakfast but you'll eat it later. That's true. The idea of being healthy, that really leads to an awful lot of people just having a good energy beverage or a very light yogurt berry thing in the morning. But that means we are going to eat later and heavier for like a late breakfast and early lunch. Um, and so your segment works really well with that. Yeah, 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 I agree. So, you know, you still have your early risers. You know, I mean, with the turning point, we've never, we've never settled into any sort of demographic. We're not, we're not a young person's uh, restaurant. We're not a retiree's uh, 55 or older restaurant. We're not a lunching ladies restaurant. We, we kind of appeal to the masses and, and we've never pigeonholed ourselves into any one group of people. Uh, and, and that's what I, I like about our opportunities. When we were out, we were just out in Las Vegas at the multi-unit franchise conference that was out there. And one of our little pitches is own a day park, don't own a trend, mm -hmm. you know, and that's what we are. We're a day park. We're selling right. a, a day park. It's, it's not a trend. It's not, a, you know, there was so many offerings of, of text masks, street tacos and you know and that's the big heavy hitting thing and four years ago was quick service pizza and pizza was everywhere and and there's now the better fried chicken concepts and hot nashville chicken concepts are starting <laughs> to pop up and you know these are all trends that kind of come and go and i'm sure uh, chris you've been in you've you've seen the the rise and fall of yogurt over the years and you know, yogurt's hot and then yogurt's not hot. And so, you know, when we look at breakfast and lunch, it really is, it's its a day part. It's its a day part. And you can maneuver in that day part. Nobody had ever heard of avocado toast 10 years ago. Now, if you don't have avocado toast on your menu, you're, you're missing it. So, you know, you can maneuver within that day part of whatever the trends are. So that's why I really like it. Well, we've got a really, really good grip on it too. This has been very, very enjoyable. Kirk, thank you so much. I think we're gonna have to kind of wrap up here, but we certainly, certainly enjoyed learning about your company, your background, um, your plans for the future. They sound tremendously exciting. We wish you the best of luck implementing it. It was really great talking with you. You know, I follow the podcast and I wish you uh, you both all, all the best in the future. Same to you, Kirk. Thanks very much and have a great weekend. Yep, you care. care.
Thanks. Thank you, everyone. And we hope that we'll come across you very quickly on another Corner Booth. We'd like to thank Touch Bistro for sponsoring this episode. Touch Bistro provides an all-in-one POS and restaurant management platform for venues of all sizes, from food trucks to fine dining. Go to touchbistro.com to find out how Touch Bistro can solve your restaurant technology challenges today. Thank you for joining us on The Corner Booth. We'll be back next Tuesday with more inspiration, insights, and industry best practices to help you engage your team, delight your guests, and grow your business.